Man, we are continuing our series on a book of gospel wisdom, the book of gospel wisdom, and it's the book of James. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn there to the book of James. I love another way that you can describe the book of James. It is a book about, and these words are uh, repetitive for a reason, it's a book of really living out our real faith in a real world. All right. Sometimes we get this kind of ethereal kind of uh, space age or even up in the clouds kind of thing. But listen, the faith that you received, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and yes, he saves you, uh, a benefit of that is heaven. But when he saves you, he saves you also for the here and now. That he promises his presence with you. He promises uh, that he will never leave or forsake. He promises strength. He promises peace in the midst of everything that we're going through. And listen, the, the salvation, it begins that very moment and it continues on. It's producing something absolutely amazing. And so James wants to really emphasize what it means to really live out your faith in a real world. And I've said this last week and I'll say it again. If you're in James, uh, go to ver- uh, chapter 1. This kind of is the main idea of this whole book. If you were to succinct it into two verses, here it is in James 1, 26 and 27. All right, so James is very practical in this book. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, again, we talked about this before. When he uses the term religious, he's not talking about a cold, dead orthodoxy like sometimes we hear about today in churches that are dying because they may not hold to the truth of the gospel, but it's all about, hey, we're just people of love and let all the chips fall where they may kind of thing. Or, or they, they put uh, following rules and regulations over uh, relationships with God and with one another. He's not talking about that type of cold, dead religion. He's talking about an honest, true faith and trust in Christ. So again, if anyone thinks that he is religious in a positive sense and he does not bridle his tongue... But deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, if you want to understand what true faith is, according to James, true faith is evidenced not by perfection, praise God, right? Not by perfection, but progress. In these three areas. Number one, our communication. All right? Your tongue reveals who you are. All right? Uh, our compassion. Okay, it's about serving those who really need us versus serving those who can help you out. All right? That's selfishness. That's not service. And then, of course, by our conduct. Okay, we are to be a people who are marked by humility, mercy, and compassion, grace. Not people who are prideful, judgmental, jealous, and selfish. All right? So we are to be people who show our faith in our communication, our compassion, and our conduct. So as you read the book of James, and that's our whole goal here, as we go verse by verse through these books, my goal is that you would also take this book home, read it, uh, just marinate in it, and allow God's word to really speak to you about what it is that he wants to say to you. This book is written for you. Can you believe that? This book was written for you so that you can know who you are and you can know who he is. So as you read this book, here's what you're going to find quickly. James, he's, he's scared about something. He is afraid that the people reading this book have been deceived into believing lies about Christianity and about Christ. So this book goes into great lengths to clear up those misconceptions. Just chapter 1 alone, he uses the word deceive three times, and he speaks about it in multiple ways. For example, don't be deceived about this. God does not answer doubtful, faithless prayers. Okay? If you're just flippantly throwing up prayers but not really believing that it's going to happen, God's like, you know, it's useless. He also warns us not to, not to, that God does not tempt anyone to do evil. How many of us blame God for things that are going on in our life? You know, the things that are evil and whatever. God's tempting me. He says, that's deception. Why? Because God only gives good gifts. Only things that are good. Now, they may not feel good at the time, but we look, we look back 10 years from now, 
20 years from now, or maybe in heaven 10,000 years from now, we'll say, God, you did make the right decision there. You did give me a good gift, and I rejected it so often. He also says, don't be deceived by simply being a hearer of the word and not a doer. Listen, you right now, everyone in this room are following step number one there. You're going to be a hearer of the word, but that's not enough. He says, if all you do is hear the word, you're a deceived person. You got to be someone who takes that word and does something with it. I mean, it's God's word given to you so that you can know him more, understand yourself more, and know how to love others more. God's word is so important for you, not just to hear, but to also live. He also says, don't be deceived about an uncontrolled tongue. Listen, if you cannot control your tongue, that is incompatible with Christianity. That's in verse 26. We just read that. It's incompatible with Christianity. An uncontrolled tongue. I love Jesus and all, but I'm going to say what I think. Hold on there. Be very careful because you are not painting an accurate picture of Christ when you do that. And last, we're deceived by thinking that uh, discrimination, we, we can come up with other words, favoritism, or hey, you know, they're, they're just someone that I would probably get along with better. James says discrimination is anti-Christian. James, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? He doesn't pull any punches. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to see that James goes to the very heart of the matter. What we're going to talk about today, I'm just going to be honest with you, are very controversial passages of Scripture. But remember his goal. James' desire is that you would not be deceived. And I'm going to tell you my goal, something that I prayed about, okay? My goal is that in what I say, it would not crush a weak a feeble, holding on to the last strings type of faith that you may be having. My goal is not to crush that. My goal is for you to examine yourself and expose a false faith. So please understand my heart here. I'm not here to crush someone who has an imperfect faith because that would be me, okay? My faith is imperfect. But to expose a false faith that we may be living. If you have your Bible, go to James chapter 2, verse 14. Very serious passage of Scripture here. But again, why is James doing this? Why am I doing this? Because we love you. The most unloving thing we can do is allow you to continue going a direction that is wrong, right? And so James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Wait a minute. (laughs) What did we just read there? You got to have faith and works. Listen, if you've been been reading your Bible, reading the the, the whole of Scripture, even the Old Testament, uh, we see glimpses of a great truth. A truth that the Apostle Paul hits heavily. And that is... Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So isn't, isn't James just saying the opposite of what the rest of the Bible teaches? Especially the Apostle Paul? Again, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works, can that faith save him? Is James now preaching a different gospel than the Apostle Paul? Absolutely not. But I believe explanation is is needed here. And what I want to do right now is kind of give you the differences, uh, the contrasts between Paul and his situation and James and his situation before we move on to these other verses. All right? So Paul's audience... Think about the people that Paul wrote to, okay? And think about the people, if you're in the book of Acts, the people that Paul confronted on a continual basis. Paul constantly and continually confronted legalism. He confronted Jewish people who wanted to squish Paul's faith of trust and faith and trust alone in Christ alone. They always wanted to add a work in order for you to get saved. For example, circumcision, obeying to the T, all the laws of uh, the Old Testament. So Paul's audience 
was a group of legalists. Okay? Their mindset was doing the right things gets you good with God. James' audience is different. James' audience were a bunch of young believers, young Jewish believers, who were going through a lot of trials, a lot of temptations, and they were, according to what we see there, they were deceived. They were deceived into believing a lot of lies about God. Namely, that all I got to do is pray a prayer, and then I'm good to go. I don't have to change at all. So Paul's audience had the mindset, I could do anything I want as long as I have a little religion. That's cold, dead orthodoxy. That's not the religion that James talks about. Because the James talks, the, the religion that James talks about actually produces something. So the audience is completely different. You say the same truth, but you say it in different ways to different audiences. Another way is how they defined works. The Apostle Paul defined works in a very negative sense. And he did that because people thought works meant that you earn acceptance with God. So Paul would say, listen, you got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. You, you can't earn or deserve salvation. Some of you are trying to do that very thing. You're picking up trash on the side of the road. You're following the, the, the laws of the Old Testament. You're reading a chapter a day in the Bible, hoping that someday when you stand before God, you'll be able to give them this checklist of all the things that you did, and then God is forced, because of your good works, to bring you to heaven. Totally overlooking your sin. And that is not biblical. Now, James is going to define works in a positive sense. He's going to define works as acts that demonstrate... Or authenticate that you have faith. Okay, I'll explain this more. I may even sound a little repetitive. And it's because this is a truth I, we do not need to get wrong. Okay? So, James defines work in a very positive sense. Basically this. Listen, your good works prove that you have true faith. Paul would say that you are saved by grace apart from works. He would be against people who says, your works equals salvation. James would say, faith apart from works is not salvation. Meaning that works proves that there is something happened in your life that changed you. You're doing good works because you are saved. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Didn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you are in Christ, you are a what? A new creation. The old things are gone. The new has come. So what the Apostle Paul would say is that if you truly have saving faith, you're going to be different. Guess what James is saying? If you truly have faith, you're going to be different. They're saying the same thing. So Paul is not in disagreement with James. Paul knew. Paul knew that the result of true faith is the production of good works. Stay in James, but if you wouldn't mind turning to Ephesians chapter 2. One of the great passages of faith alone in Christ alone, nothing you can do to earn or deserve salvation. It is a total dependence on the finished work of Christ when he came as perfect son of God to die on a cross for you. He paid it Fully, so much, in fact, that Jesus, after three hours of silence and the, the torment that he experienced on the cross, after those three hours of silence, Jesus said, it is paid in full. It is finished. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say that James would say amen to. All right? In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, the scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of your own, not of your own doing, excuse me. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To which Pauline people would say, Amen, that's it. Faith alone and Christ alone, nothing else to it. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. Listen, 
a huge truth. There's a lot of things about the scripture like, yeah, this is true and this is true also. Here's one of those things, okay? Uh, you are saved by faith, okay? Because there is a God who loves you. He's God of all power, God of all might. He controls and runs all things, right? And yet, he used that power and might to pay for your sins, to give you hope, to give you eternal life if you would put your faith and trust into him. But if you do that, you need to know something else. God has every right to make demands of your life. He has every, He's Lord. He is God of all. And so God says, listen, salvation is a free gift. But it'll cost you everything. It means submitting yourself to God. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of that. For those of us who are now cringing, here's the beauty. There is no other leader, sovereign, king, or dictator that has your best interest in mind except God. So it's a good thing to submit to him. Because as we said in chapter 4, he's only going to give us good gifts. He's going to give us gifts that make an eternal difference. may not be what we want, but it's exactly what we need. It is a good thing for God to demand us to do things. And what does he demand us to do? Love him and love others. Whoa, what a thought. Let's keep going. This is good stuff. Good stuff. Amen. All right. Good stuff here. So Ephesians tells us this. Here, let me me just put it to you succinctly. Paul, his emphasis when he talks about works and salvation, Paul emphasizes the root of your salvation. Grace alone, faith alone, and grace alone. James doesn't emphasize the root as much as he emphasizes the fruit of your salvation. That if you truly are saved, something is going to happen in your life. You're going to produce something different than you did before. Jesus would say a bad tree produces bad fruit, but a good tree, a redeemed tree, will produce good fruit. So let me give you the salvation formula. Something for you to hang tight with, something for you to teach VBS about and all this other stuff. Listen, the salvation formula is this. This is the false view that people have about salvation. Salvation is faith plus works equals salvation. That is not true. That is unbiblical. That is every other religion other than Christ. Think about it. Every other religion tells you to do this. Every other religion says you need to work your way up in order for God to like you. Christianity is completely different because the biblical formula of salvation is this. It is faith plus salvation equals works. We don't have God coming, I mean, us running up to God. We can't do it. Christianity is God in heaven coming down to earth to be with us and to save us. And because of his great salvation and our love towards him, we say, whatever you want, we'll do. The great prophet Isaiah, when he was overwhelmed by the goodness and the glory of God and God forgiving him of his uncleanness, of his sin, you know what his response was? Here's what it wasn't. Thanks, I'll see you when I die. That wasn't it. He was like, do you have work for me to do? You saved my soul. I want to live my life for you. God says, who's going to go? I've got a message to tell all the people. He said, here am I. Send me. That's what true faith produces. It produces work. And this is what James is going to tell us. Let's go back to James 2, 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Listen, what type of faith can save a person? That's a good question. Here's the answer. It's a living faith. It's one that trusts. Trust means to depend upon, to believe, to be convinced of. For you to trust in something means that you believe. It means that you depend upon. It means that you are absolutely convinced of. Can I ask a question? And you could be honest here. 
How many of you, when you walked in this morning, you saw these pews and you got scared? You were like, is that pew going to hold me up? I'm here to tell you, by the confidence of my observation right here, every one of you had faith that the chair would hold you. How do I know that? Because you sat down, okay? If there were some people standing up, I'd ask, what's going on? You listen, do you think these chairs will hold you? Yeah, 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 I believe they will. Why don't you come sit down? I, yeah, I'd rather not. Why? See, they'll hold you. They're good. Yeah, but you know, I just don't want to take a chance. That is not faith. We can say the same about airplanes. Okay, but let's go deeper. Do you have faith in Christ? A faith that says two things. Number one, you don't have to work anymore to go to heaven. You rest fully and totally in Christ, number one. And number two, do what he says and he'll take care of the results. How many of us say, well, I prayed and I received him, but (laughs) what he's asking me to do is a little too hard. He's not going to be Lord of that area of my life. That's not saving faith. So, do you have a trust, a dependence, a belief? Are you convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do? So, to say that you trust and do not obey, you know what that is? I don't know. What is that? Think about going to a doctor's office and he says, listen, you have been diagnosed with something pretty messed up. In the next few days, it's going to get really bad, okay? There's going to be things coming out of you that you don't even know. You're going to take pictures of it and show it on Facebook for your friends. They're not going to be your friends anymore, okay? So, but guess what? They just found a cure for this. It's in this pill. You take this pill and you will live. And imagine you taking that pill home and just staring at it for days. How ludicrous that would be, wouldn't it? Oh, you've got your reasons, right? Oh, the pill is too big. It doesn't taste good. Or maybe I'll do it later. Listen, to not obey is to not trust. Did you hear that? To not obey is to not trust. So those of us who say we have faith in Jesus Christ, listen very carefully. According to James, your lack of obedience is not laziness. It's not confusion. And it's not fear. Your lack of obedience is a lack of trust. You don't trust Christ. What type of faith do you have? A living faith or a dead faith? What does faith look like? What does a living faith look like? Finally, we're getting to our message. Number one, here's what living faith looks like. Living faith loves one another. Living faith truly loves one another. Look in verse 15. James 2, 15 to 17 says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Hey, brother, sister, go go in peace. Be warmed, be filled. God bless you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Listen, who wants to be a part of a church that's like that? Anybody? Raise your hand. Who wants to be a part of a church that encourages people with words only? Anybody? No. None of us want to be a part of that church. Because that church is full of two things. It's full of wishful thinking with no action. Oh, let's pray for the poor that they would all be fed and do nothing about it. Don't give an offering to pay for that or to, to, to not be involved in, in, in ministries that help people, even in our own community, who are suffering. And listen, again, and I, I just want to put, put a plug in right now. Listen, we have been blessed with lots of kids back there, like 30 kids 
We need, in order for the rotation to work well, we need about 10 more people, 10 more people to sign up so that our nursery can run effectively instead of piling kids into a room that can be spread out to have another room available. But that's up to us. The need is in front of us, people. The need is in front of us. What are we going to do about it? Listen, Lindsay's going to be here at the end of service during invitation. Sign up. We need 10 more people to make this successful. We say we have faith. Are we going to do something about it? So some of us, some of us have been involved in a church, and I hope we're not a part of a church. It's all about wishful thinking. I hope the poor are fed and and clothed and taken care of and doing nothing about it. There's another type of church, and that's the arrogant thinking church. Those are the ones that says uh, to the poor person, the person without any clothes on, hey, buddy, here's what you need to do. You need to go put on some pants. I got an idea. Why don't you go eat dinner? Captain Obvious, right? <laughs> some of them, you need to get a better job. You need to get a job, you slacker. Not even knowing what that person is going through. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I used to be that type of person that said, come on, suck it up. You know, there's always someplace hiring until I met some people who had health issues and they struggled. And believe me, they put out so many applications and no one would look at them because of the struggles that they were personally dealing with. Are we going to be arrogant like that? Just like the person in this passage. Oh, go be warm, be filled, go have dinner. You look hungry, go have dinner. James says true faith will give that person a sandwich. Give that person some clothes. Take care of them. So a living faith, here's what a living faith is. A living faith is a faith that loves one another. It is a faith that is investing in other people. It is a faith that is dying to self for the needs of others. It is a faith that is sacrificing so that other people can be taken care of. And I want to just say this, especially people in the church. Listen to what the scripture says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in food. Listen, we need to be sure that we are taking care of each other. That's what's going to blow this world away when they see that type of response from God's people towards God's people. Is that what we see in churches today? No, it isn't. Go to CNN, go to Fox News, go to wherever you want to go. And here's what you see in the church today. According to secular media, they see that the church loves the outsiders, even to the expense of truth. You hear me? They're willing to say, I know what the Bible says, but if we want more people here, let's not preach these passages. Let's make everybody happy. And inclusive, and whatever other words you want to use, let's not go there so that we can take care of ourselves. Again, that's the compassion issue. We're only going to help the people who can help us out. That's the kind of church loves the outsider at the expense of truth. Now we are, come on, you know we're supposed to love the outsider, but what I'm saying is we're compromising on the truth of God's word in order to love people. The problem is that's not true love. That type of love will send people uh, separated from God in eternal hell because we're not giving them the truth. So here's what the church today does. They love the outsiders, even at the expense of truth. And here it is. And they attack brothers and sisters for standing up for the truth. You'll see what happened last week. A pastor who who I highly admire and respect, Pastor David Platt. He was president of our own church. International Mission Board, sending out the most missionaries of any other type of denomination, Southern Baptist Convention. Pastor David Platt. Here's what happened to him last week, if you do not know. Okay, he was preaching. They have multiple services. At the one o'clock service, he's preaching the gospel. And in the midst of that, he, as, as I think invitation was going on, he was in the back. Somebody whispered in his ear, uh, President Donald Trump, who was, you know, there was shootings going on in Virginia. Donald Trump is at the church and he asked if you would pray for him. 
uh, uh, you know, do I get a deacon's meeting going? Do I do this and that? No, he made a decision. He made an executive decision to say, absolutely. According to First uh, Timothy chapter 2, we are to pray for our government leaders. So absolutely. So David Platt at his church prayed for our president. It didn't matter if it was Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. It doesn't matter. We are called by God to pray for our leaders. And you know what he did? He prayed for his leaders. And a part of his own church, plus many churches, attacked him because of it. Is that saving faith or dead faith that loves the outsiders even though it means uh, uh, compromising on truths and attacking people who stand up for the truth? Church, what type of faith do we have? How is this world going to know that we are different? How is this world going to know that we are followers of Christ. Well, John 13 gives us the answer to that. John 13, verse 34 and 35. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people, okay? Inside, outside the church, all people will know that you are my disciples. Why? If you have love for one another. So church, let me ask you the question right there in scripture. How is the world going to know that we're his? By what? By our love for who? One another. So faith without works is like words without deeds. Worthless. Dead. Number two. Living faith loves one another. Living faith loves one another. Number two, living faith lives out what they believe. Uh Uh-oh, here it comes. Living faith lives out what they believe. Verse 18, James 2.18 says this, But someone will say this, Well, you have faith and I have works. And he says, Show me, which means give me proof of. To show somebody means to give them proof of what I'm about to say. Give me proof. Show me your faith that's apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Meaning this. Okay, let's have a debate here. You say you have a type of faith, and I'm telling you that I have a saving faith in Christ. Okay? I trust in Him alone, and it's evidenced by my works. You say that you have faith without works. Prove it. What's their answer to that? Think about it. Well, you prove yours first. All right, I'll prove it. I'm going to stand up for the word of God even if it gets me into trouble. My goal isn't to get in trouble. My goal is to be faithful to God's word. And so if I do that, whatever happens, happens. I trust Jesus. That's my evidence that I have faith because I'm obeying the one who loves me. Back to you. Prove your faith. I believe Okay, show me what that looks like. I believe. You see the difference? I believe. A living faith. Let's keep going to this verse. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me, give me proof of your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Listen, you believe that God is one? Good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Listen, living faith lives out what they believe. Living faith lives out their beliefs. Listen, it is more than what you know. It's what you do with what you know. Many of us know many Bible stories. Many of us know, even know the plan of salvation. Some of us, even when we were younger, we prayed a sinner's prayer. But listen, if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ... And your faith is not producing the fruit of obedience to God. Listen, no matter how good or no matter what good things you say, you have a dead faith. 
James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Listen, you may believe the very core message of the faith. The one that, he said, you believe that God is one. James is talking to these Hebrew people, these Jewish people who say that they're believers. And he says, you believe the very core tenet of the faith from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Think about it. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe that? Great. Good news. Here's the problem with with that line of thinking. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Even demons believe what you believe. Now here's the question. Think this through. How do demons respond to the truth of God? How do demons respond to the truth of God? Well, by fear, it says they shudder. They respond by, here it comes, disobedience. That's why they're demons, not angels, right? So they respond to the truth of God, the very truth that you say you believe. They respond by fear and by disobedience and rebellion. How many people do we know today believe the truths of God and they respond to it by disobedience. Do you hear that? You say you have a faith and yet you're sleeping around unmarried or with someone who is married or you being married sleeping around. That's a dead faith. Okay? You say, I have a saving faith and yet your tongue is lashing out against brothers, sisters, and even the outsiders alike. You have discrimination. You have racism. You have favoritism in your heart and in your actions. You have a faith that is demonic. That's what the scripture says. You have a faith that says, I believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. And yet when you have friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers all around you and you never share the gospel with them, what type of faith do you have? Demonic faith. Commentator says, saving faith is not simply a profession or an empty claim, nor is it merely the acceptance of a creed. Okay? Listen, demons have good doctrine. Saving faith is that which produces an obedient life. Do your beliefs. Do your beliefs move you to action for the glory of God and the good of others. Living faith lives out what they believe. Perfectly? Absolutely not. Willingly, yes. Number three, living faith is proven by your trust in God. Living faith is proven. So think about this. Okay, living faith loves one another. He says we need to be people of works. Oh, we got to do works. What's the work? Love people. Oh, okay. That's a good thing. Okay, I'd like to be in a community that loves one another. That's a good thing. God, thank you for that law. Right, The royal law of love, which we talked about last week and in chapter 1. He tells us what the law of God is. Okay, It's to love one another as we love ourselves. So living faith, he's telling us to love one another. Number two, living faith lives out what you believe. Doesn't that just make sense? What kind of God would say, I'm going to save you and here's what I'm calling you to do. But if you don't do it, it's all right. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't separate us. It doesn't set us apart as people who are looking in saying, I want to have that type of relationship with God and man. Number three, living faith is proven by trust in God. Look at verse 20 and 24 through 24. James says, do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, that seems to be a warning passage. Where is this going? Again, this is nothing in any way contrary to the rest of the scriptures. Okay, let me ask you this question. What does faith with works look like? We know what faith without works looks like. It's dead. It's demonic. Okay, what does faith with works look like? Here's what it looks like. Okay, as you read this passage, Paul, by the way, uses uh, Abraham as a symbol of faith alone in Christ alone. All right, so him using, uh, uh, excuse me, Abraham as a symbol of someone who is justified by works is beautiful. And here's why. Let's look at Abraham's life. Abraham believed God in Genesis chapter 15. Here's what happened. Long story short, God called Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. It's important to know the the numbers here. Chapter 12 of Genesis, he says, I need you to move your whole family to someplace hundreds of miles away. And he said, okay, I believe you. And then God promised you're going to have a whole lot of kids. And that's a promise that God is going to give you. Well, guess what? He was 75 years old and his wife was barren. How's that going to work out? Only God can do that. You need to have faith. And so in Genesis chapter 15, here's what God said. Even though you don't have kids yet, I'm promising you, you're going to have kids. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So faith began. In Genesis chapter 15. Okay? Faith began in Genesis chapter 15. Decades later, God tested Abraham's faith. God knew his faith, but God wanted us. He wanted the world to know that his faith was not just some intellectual ascent. He wanted us to know that his faith was saving, was living, was true. So decades later, he asked Abraham to do an impossible assignment. The one son that he had was to be sacrificed. You know what Abraham did? He was willing to do what God said. So God stopped and said, there is no doubt, there should be no doubt in anybody's mind that Abraham is a man of faith. How do I know that? Because of the works that he did after faith. So this is what he's trying to say here. Abraham believed God. Abraham then acted on his faith. So Abraham's faith was justified and proven how? By his works. James even recognized that Abraham's faith alone is what saved him. That's chapter uh, verse 23. Remember, he quoted it in chapter 15 of Genesis. So we know this. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about this whole situation. He says, God knew Abraham's faith to be genuine. Abraham is justified to us, to human eyes. In Genesis chapter 22, when he shows his faith through obedience, here the word justify does not mean to be reconciled to God, but to demonstrate the faith of a prior claim. Just as true wisdom is demonstrated by its fruit, Abraham's claim to faith is justified by his outward obedience. Abraham's work were not the cause of his salvation. They added no merit to the perfect and sufficient work of Christ. They were simply evidences of it. James 2.22 says this. You see that faith was active along with works. Speaking of Abraham, you see that faith was active along with works. You see that? Faith was active, and that activated works. And faith was completed by his works. Here's what Dr. John MacArthur says about the word completed. He says, this word refers to the bringing something to its end or its fullness. Just like a fruit tree. You plant a fruit tree, the uh, the bulb, whatever you want to call it, the, the branches, they start to form. And it's awesome, and it's beautiful, and you're so excited. But you're not fully excited yet, are you? You're excited when what, ha- when what happens? Fruit grows, right? And so that's exactly what he's talking about with Abraham. His faith was solidified dozens of years ago. But his faith 
proved the reality of his heart by what he did. Fruit. So a real maturing faith is one that (laughs) imperfectly trusts and obeys God. One last illustration. Rahab. Look in verse 25. What a beautiful story of faith and works. James says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received messengers and sent them out another way? Listen, this is a crazy story. In the book of Joshua, God's people were wandering in the desert for 40 years. God opened the gates for them to go into the promised land. The first battle that they were going to experience is a huge fortified city called Jericho. God told his people, I've already defeated the city. In their hearts and minds, they are scared to death of you. There was a lady in there, a prostitute named Rahab. She believed in the one true God. Okay, She trusted in the God of Israel, not the foreign gods that the people of Jericho uh, understood and knew. How do you know that? We wouldn't know that unless she acted on that faith, right? You and I would not know of of, of Rahab's faith unless she acted upon it. And how did she act upon it? Well, some spies came to check out the area. When she recognized that those were Israelites and they had trust in God, she was willing to do anything to protect them. And here was the promise of God on her life. Because you did that, I'm going to rescue you and your family. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine if Rahab, she says she believes in the one true God, but she did not help. What would be the result? What would have happened if Rahab did not help the messengers escape? That would have proven to us that she had no real real faith in God by her works. And her and her family would have been wiped out. But here's, because of her faith, here's what really happened. Because her faith was acted upon, we now know, okay, we now, 4,000 years later, well, 3,500 years later, we know that she was a woman of faith. We know that her family was rescued because of her faith. We know that she lived in the blessing of God and she became the great, 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 great grandmother of King David and the great, 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 up to 14, grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Her faith produced a work that you and I get to bask in today. And it was all because of her faith. So I want to conclude with this. I want to be very clear, very clear. Salvation is by grace through faith. You are not saved by faith plus works, okay? You are saved by a faith that works, okay? John Calvin said it this way, faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. A living faith is this. A living faith lives for loving God and others, and it produces a radical change of purpose and affections. It's called a new life. It's not perfect by any means. None of us are going to be perfect. But our desires have had to change. It's no longer about us building our kingdoms, but about having the joy of being part of building God's kingdom. Here's what a dead faith is. A dead faith has head knowledge, but no change. Ask yourself that. Is my faith giving me a desire and an action to build God's kingdom? Or do I just have more head knowledge and no change? A living, saving faith results in a changed life. And the evidence of that is works. So I ask you again, I do not want to crush a fragile faith. But I ask you, To examine the faith you have. Do you believe that Jesus is the perfect, holy Son of God? Who came and died for our sins. If you believe that, you have head knowledge. I say that again. I know that time is away, but please don't move around. This is is such a holy moment here. Do you believe that Jesus is the perfect, holy Son of God who came and died for our sins? If you believe that... You have head knowledge. 
That's good. But you need more. Do you really trust that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life? Have you personally called upon the name of Jesus to save you personally? Not just the facts. You need the experience. You need God to intervene or you perish. That is a saving faith. Have you called on him to save you from your sins? That is faith. If you say you have done that, then I ask you this. Does your life match your beliefs? Do you love one another? Do you live to know? Do you live what you know? Do you live what you believe about God according to his word, not your own conceptions? Because that's deception. Do you, li- do you live what you believe about God according to what his word says, not what you think? And do you imperfectly trust and obey God in all things? Do you trust God for your time? Or do you squander it away on the things of this world? Do you imperfectly trust God with your talents? Wanting to serve God in a way that uplifts his kingdom and not your own. Do you worship God with your treasures? We give sacrificially so that other people experience what we have in Christ. Do you trust him with your testimony? Are you sharing the very faith that you believe in and trust in to get you to heaven and to have a relationship with God? Do you share that? To put it simply, and I close with this, is your faith alive? Is your faith alive? Can people see Christ in your life? Father, please, please God, cause your Holy Spirit to move in every pew, every seat, every instrument, every place where people are who are hearing this message. God, please do your wonderful work of grace. It's the most gracious thing that you can do, Lord Jesus, is to open the eyes of people who are living a life of deception, who think they're they're going one way, but the reality is they haven't. God, again, I I pray that those who are, are of the faith would not struggle needlessly, but that everyone would examine themselves to see if they truly are clinging to Jesus and to him alone. And that's evidenced by a new heart, a new life, a new mission, a new vision, a new desire. God, we're imperfect. God, you're not calling us to that. You're calling us to progress, to daily grow closer, to be molded into the image of your son. So God, right now I pray in the honesty of this moment, please, Draw people to saving faith. Draw people away from Satan's deception and demonic doctrine and to trust in the truth of your word. Your word has gone out. May you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Listen.